I suppose every preacher has a bucket list, things he wants to preach on before he kicks the bucket. For me, the preaching bucket list includes Ecclesiastes. At some point, I want to preach through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. I've been through it before in Bible study. Some of you have done that with me, but preaching it is different. And it's on my bucket list for sure. Now, you might wonder, uh, you know, Pastor, if you want to preach through Ecclesiastes so bad, why not just go ahead and do it? Well, here's the thing. Ecclesiastes is a book about maturity. That's really the theme of it. If you had to put it in a word, it's about maturity. It's about mature wisdom. If Proverbs is prim primarily wisdom for the young man, Ecclesiastes is wisdom for the old man. Now, it speaks to the young as well, as we'll see today, but it's, it's especially wisdom as we approach the end of life and look ahead to what is beyond. Here's the thing. It requires a great deal of life experience to really understand Ecclesiastes and preach it well. And I'm only 50 years old. So I need a few more years. I need a little more seasoning. Uh, I need a little more life experience before I'm ready to preach this book to you. Uh, Lord willing, I'll get there. Lord willing, I will uh, be able to cross this off the bucket list at some point. But even at the tender age of 50, I think I understand parts of the book well enough to share some things with you this morning. And that's what I want to do. This morning and next week, we'll be looking at these last couple chapters in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, of course, are a pair. They go together, both come to us from Solomon, they're both about wisdom, but even though they have a lot in common, there are some things that are really different about the two books. You read Proverbs and you can't help but think, wow, life makes sense. If I do A, B will happen. If I do C, D follows. Proverbs points us to certain moral patterns ingrained in God's universe. God made a moral universe, a universe with moral laws, moral cause and effect, if you will, and you see that in the book of Proverbs. But then you turn the page to Ecclesiastes, and it looks like the world is this chaotic mess, and nobody can make sense out of anything, and we're surrounded by this mist, this vapor, so we can't even see two feet in front of us. Life is a mystery wrapped in an enigma. It's a great puzzle. Who can solve it? Think of it this way. Proverbs teaches us the value of wisdom. Ecclesiastes shows us the limits of wisdom. It does not deny the value of wisdom, but it shows us the limits of that wisdom. Uh, I think Gandalf from Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, sums it up well when he says, even the wise cannot see all ends. Even the wise cannot see all ends. That's Ecclesiastes. Wisdom, as valuable and as glorious as it is, it has limits. Even the wise cannot see all ends. And because wisdom has its limits, we have to... In the words of another fictional sage, Bayard the Truth Speaker from the Wilder King Trilogy, we have to live the life that unfolds before us. That is to say, we cannot seize control of our own lives. We never get leverage over life. We can never control our circumstances. And so what do we do? We simply have to live the life that unfolds before us in God's providence. We have to trust God and obey God one day at a time. Or as Elizabeth Elliott put it, do the next thing. Simply do the next thing. Whatever God puts in front of you to do next, do it with joy and faith. Do the next obedient thing. Because we cannot control life, life can be vexing. We all experience this, and of course, as we get older, we experience it more and more. Uh, we experience the vexations of life. 
or as another author has put it, the universe is not a wish-granting factory. We can't have a designer life. You don't get to, to design life any way you want it to be. Life does not give us what we want as if we could choose everything just how we want it to be. No, instead, life generally presents us with a series of options. Some good, some bad. Among those that are good, some are better. Life doesn't give us what we want. Life presents us with a series of options, and virtually every choice we could make has trade-offs. Nobody can quote-unquote have it all. It's just impossible. You're given a, a, a certain number of choices. You have to make your choice, what you think is best, and you have to go with it. You have to choose what you think is most valuable, what you think is best, what you think is most fitting. That's what wisdom does. Wisdom looks at the options, the realistic options you're presented with, and then goes the best possible path. There is a realism to our faith, and there's a faithfulness to our realism. That's wisdom. That's Ecclesiastes. Actually, nobody explains Ecclesiastes better than J.I. Packer. Uh, does in his classic book, Knowing God. And if you haven't read Knowing God, you know, that's one of those books that sits on a lot of people's shelves. Uh, it was really popular about a generation ago. It's kind of considered a classic, but I find so few people have actually read it. Put down whatever book you're reading right now, go pick up J.I. Packer's Knowing God and read it. You'll be glad you did. Packer says the purpose of Ecclesiastes, at least part of the purpose of Ecclesiastes, is to keep us from falling into what he calls the York signal box mistake. Now you might think, okay, what is the York signal box mistake? Well, imagine yourself at a train station and you're standing on the platform in this huge train station. York, England is the one that Packer has chosen for the illustration. And trains are coming and going in all different directions at all different times. And it looks like chaos. It looks like a mess. How do these trains not run into each other? Who's controlling the trains? If you just stand on the platform, it looks like a chaotic mess. But in the signal box, there is an electronic display that shows all of the tracks within five miles of the station with lights indicating the position and direction of all the trains. See, a signal box is to trains what an air traffic control station is to airplanes. If you're in that signal box, you kind of get a bird's eye view of everything. You can see where everything's going, where everything is at this moment, where it's headed. From the platform, it almost looks like chaos, but inside the signal box, it all makes sense. Now, this is Packer's point. He says, sometimes we're prone to think of wisdom in this way. Wisdom makes us the man in the signal box. And so if I have wisdom, that means I'm going to have some secret, special insight into what God is up to in the world and in my life. It's like wisdom is going to give me this bird's eye view of reality. And so wisdom will eliminate the mystery from life. Wisdom is like this GPS system that tells me where I need to go, every turn I need to make. For the wise, everything will make sense. Nothing will seem out of place. Packer says that is the wrong view of wisdom. That's not what wisdom is. We should never confuse human wisdom with divine omniscience. Wisdom doesn't allow you to tap into the omniscience of God. It doesn't allow you to tap into the secret decree of God. Wisdom does not eliminate life's mysteries. Rather, wisdom is a way of coping with those mysteries. Wisdom does not give you control over life. It does not give you access to the secret decree of God. Wisdom enables you to live even though you're not in control. It allows you to live a joyful and faithful life. As creatures, we are never in the signal box. We are always 
on the platform. Well, if that's not what wisdom is, if wisdom's not entering into the signal box or the air traffic control station where you can see everything from this bird's eye point of view, what is wisdom? Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the essence of wisdom is living by faith. What is the heart of wisdom in Ecclesiastes? Wisdom is trusting God even when we cannot discern what he is up to in our lives or in the world around us. Wisdom is trusting God in the face of all kinds of mystery and the inscrutability of life. Life is a vapor, after all. We can't control it. That's what Solomon says in this book again and again. It's not life is vanity as if life is meaningless. What he really says is life is a vapor. It's like a mist. You can't control life any more than you can control fog. On a foggy day, I know it's hard to imagine a foggy day as hot as it's been, but imagine a foggy day going outside in the fog. You can't grab hold of the fog. You can't sculpt the fog or shape it however you want it to be. Fog doesn't work that way. That's what Solomon is saying. Life is a fog. It's a vapor. It's a mist. We can't control it any more than we can shepherd the wind. That's the other analogy that Solomon uses again and again. Just like you can't shepherd the wind, you can't make the wind blow whichever way you want, so you cannot control your life. Wisdom recognizes all of that. Wisdom recognizes our weakness, our vulnerability, our creaturely dependence, our limitations. And so wisdom clings to God, the one who can shepherd the wind, the one who can sculpt the vapor. Wisdom is living by faith and trusting God even when we don't have all the answers. Wisdom is not getting God's inside information. Wisdom is not a form of insider trading. God doesn't do inside, insider trading of that sort. He doesn't let us cheat life, so to speak. God doesn't reveal all his secrets to us. God does not tell you your fortune. He does tell you your duty. Wisdom knows the difference. Wisdom knows the difference and wisdom gets to work. Doing what God has said to do. See, wisdom is really about maturity. Now, that does not mean that just because you get older, you're automatically getting wiser. We're going to see that. It's wonderful when wisdom and old age go together. We expect that, but it doesn't always happen. Some people, as they get older, they get more evil, more foolish, because that's the trajectory their life is on. We'd like for wisdom and old age to go together, but it's been said, wisdom and old age do not always go together. Sometimes old age shows up all by itself. Sad when that happens, but it does. Really, whether or not you grow in wisdom as you age depends on how you spend your younger years. See, mature wisdom is the product of trusting and obeying God over the course of many years and many different sorts of experiences. Mature wisdom is the fruit of, we could say, a long obedience in the same direction. You keep moving through life, seeking to be obedient to God, and you go through all different kinds of experiences, and as you seek to obey God in each one of them, you accumulate wisdom, you grow in maturity. But that doesn't happen automatically. A youth well spent will lead to wisdom later in life, but a youth misspent will likely lead to a misspent life a foolish life. The reality, though, that we see in Ecclesiastes, the reality is that God wants us to grow towards maturity. He wants us to grow in wisdom. God wants us to grow up and to attain mature wisdom. 
See, unlike various pagan religions and pagan philosophies, we hold to the deeply Christian conviction that human lives, like human history, have a goal, that human lives are going somewhere. Human life is like a story with a beginning, middle, and, and, and a climactic ending. Human life is going somewhere. There's a goal to all of this, a meaning and a purpose and a mission in it. That goal ultimately is mature Christ-likeness. We want to be mature sons of the Heavenly Father so we can rule in wisdom and in righteousness in his final new creation. We want maturity and wisdom and, and, and glory, all of those things, and they all go together. Maturity, wisdom, and glory, they all belong together, and that's the goal. The book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes combine to show us how to get there in practical ways. Think of these books as companions for life's journey. Together they do give us a kind of map, not, not a super detailed GPS kind of map, but they do give us an overview of life, uh, of where we're headed or where we ought to be headed. They give us a map in such a way that we can avoid various obstacles and pitfalls, and we can arrive at the destination, we can cross the finish line and enter into that glory, that maturity that God intended for us, that God designed us for in the beginning. Towards the end of Ecclesiastes, in these final couple of chapters, Solomon begins to preach to the young about the old. Solomon's identifier in this book is the preacher. So he's really preaching a sermon throughout. And as he comes to the end of his sermon, he's really preaching to the young about old age because he wants them to understand and prepare for what is coming. He's teaching young people about the elderly so they will know what is ahead of them in life and so they can prepare themselves accordingly. And so you can really think of these last two chapters in Ecclesiastes really as a sermon or a sermon conclusion that really is directed towards both groups, young people and old people, because as Solomon talks to young people about older people, uh, of course older people can learn a great deal about themselves as well. What I want to do is try to capture some of what Solomon says to each group this morning, and of course we'll continue this next week as we move towards Solomon's grand conclusion at the very end of the book. But because this is directed, Solomon's words here are directed to young people, a lot, what that means is a lot of this is directed to a lot of you. Because a lot of you in this room are young. You're still in the spring of life, we might say. Uh, a young person in the Bible really seems to be anybody under 40, but we could say especially anyone under 20. In fact, there's obviously more categories than just young and old, different ways to break this down. And even in this passage, Solomon talks about childhood and youth as well. So there are other categories there. But what Solomon is doing here is helping you. If you're a young person, Solomon here can help you develop a vision for your life, what you should aspire to, what you want your life to look like as you get older. Do you want your life to look like a train wreck or do you want the trains to run smoothly on the track? What do you want? Solomon's going to show you how to get to the right place. Well, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 11, Solomon teaches the young to have a future-oriented, long-term view of life. This is so contrary to our current way of thinking where everything we want what we want and we want it now everything's got to be instantaneous there is no patience we want no waiting for anything we want instant gratification 
Solomon pushes back against all of that and he says, you need to develop a future-oriented, long-term view of life. You need to think of life the way a farmer thinks of sowing and reaping. Now, Solomon starts off here, he says, cast your bread on the waters. Cast your bread on the waters and you will find it after many days. What's the meaning of that? What's the meaning of cast your bread on the waters? Well, again, let me give you a little context here, a little background to help you understand. Again, throughout this book, Solomon has described life as vapor. He says all of life is vapor. Even youth is a vapor. It's like a morning mist. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone. You can't control the vapor. You can't shepherd the wind. I think of it like this, and you may have heard me use this illustration before. Life is like a wedding ceremony with a four-year-old flower girl. Okay? Think, about it, think about it this way. Life is like a wedding ceremony with a four-year-old flower girl. You can plan and rehearse all you want, and you still don't know how it's going to go until it happens. Because that four-year-old flower girl, she's got a mind of her own. And you don't quite know what she's going to do until it happens. Life is like that. Life can never be fully grasped or directed or controlled. And so what do we do? Well, you do rehearse, you do plan, but you've also got to be ready to improvise. If so much of life is outside of our control, what do we do? Well, Solomon says here, cast your bread upon the water. He's not talking about feeding ducks. He's talking about taking calculated risks in the face of uncertainty. These calculated risks might be gifts of generosity, that is, helping others. There are some who read the text that way. They think casting your bread upon the waters means helping out those in need and then expecting that in some way to come back to you. Most commentators actually think that Solomon uh, is talking about entrepreneurship here, the risk that is involved in some business venture or some commercial enterprise. Whatever the case, however you take this, the point is this. This is what Solomon is driving at. Yes, life is full of uncertainty. You cannot plan for every contingency. Nevertheless, you can live confidently and boldly. Even when you don't know how things are going to turn out, you can live confidently and boldly if you will entrust yourself to God. The unexplainable uh, events of life, the unpredictable events of life, the unexpected contingencies in life, none of those things should paralyze you into a state of inaction. That does happen for some people. It's kind of paralysis by analysis. Uh, they, they, some people have a tendency to overthink things and they can talk themselves out of anything or, or worry and anxiety can do this to you. Worry and anxiety can cripple, you, can, can cripple you to the point where you become unable to act, to do anything. You know, there are some people who would say, well, yeah, I'd like to get married, but I'm not going to get married. I can't get married. It's too risky. Haven't you seen the statistics on divorce and how many unhappy marriages there are? What if my spouse hurts me or leaves me? I can't get married. It's too risky. Or I can't have kids, uh, you know, kids can grow up and break your heart. What if, what if I had kids and my kids rebelled? Or, or, or what if I couldn't keep my kids safe? What if my kid got a disease? How would I ever handle that? I can't have kids, that's too risky. Or I can't start a business. What if it folds? What if it doesn't make it? How would I ever handle that? Now, Solomon here is not saying to be reckless. Certainly you should follow the guidance of scripture wherever it speaks. You should get counsel from others in making big decisions, especially those who are experts in whatever area of life you're looking at. But here's the reality. God has put bread in your hand. 
God has put bread in your hand, and he wants a return on that investment. It's like the parable of the talents that Jesus gave us. So take that bread God has given you and cast it out there. Do the best you can with it. Seek to make it productive. See what happens. Now Solomon immediately adds, don't put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Verse 2 goes on to talk about how it is wise to diversify your life. And again, if you're thinking about this in terms of business or commercial interests, that's one thing. There are different ways you could look at this. You could just say, for life in general, diversifying is often wise. Diversify yourself in various ways, in various areas of life, because you do not know what is coming. And by diversifying, you can become anti-fragile. You can protect yourself in various ways. Verses 3 and 4 go on and basically say, don't make excuses just because you don't know the future. Okay, again, this, this, this is speaking to the person who says, well, because I don't know what's going to happen, therefore I'm not going to do anything. That's like the farmer who says, well, because I don't know when the wind's going to come and when the rain's going to come and when the sun is going to shine, therefore I'm not going to plant a crop. Well, if you don't plant, you can never harvest. You don't have to be able to control the weather to be a farmer, to be a successful farmer, to be a farmer with a harvest. That's what Solomon is saying here. Don't make excuses based on what you think the clouds or rain or wind or sun will do or not do. Don't let your fears and worries control you. That's really his point in verse 4. Don't let those fears and worries overwhelm you. He actually goes on to make the same point in verse 6 in a little bit different way. He says, now instead of bread, he's talking about seed. He says, sow your seed in the morning and in the evening because you don't know which will prosper. So again, take what God has given you. Seek to make it productive. Seek to give God a return on the investment he's made in you. And because you don't know everything that's going to happen, you can't plan for every contingency, build some diversification into your life. Solomon here is saying, work hard and work smart. Plant your seed and do it at multiple times to give yourself the best possible opportunity for an increase. Make your plans, act on them, leave the results to God, revise the plan as needed. That's what Solomon is saying here. It seems like the kind of thing you might get in a self-help book, but there's a lot of wisdom in this as far as an approach to life. I think the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is a great example of this, of a kind of faithful improvisation in the face of life's uncertainty. Paul had a mission. Paul was determined to get to Rome, to the capital of the empire, to preach the gospel to Caesar. That's what Paul wanted to do. And you would think, well, it should be pretty easy to get to the capital city, right? Don't all roads lead to Rome? So isn't this going to be a pretty easy journey, right, for Paul? Well, it didn't turn out that way. For Paul, there were all kinds of detours. He had to go through riots and arrests and mobs and escapes and imprisonment and a disastrous shipwreck and a snake bite, all before he got to Rome. And every step along the way, what do you see Paul doing? He's doing the next thing. He's living the life that unfolds before him. He's seeking to be wise in the midst of a vaporous life, a vaporous existence. He's seeking to be obedient in the face of all kinds of mystery and and, and puzzles. See, God will get us where he wants to take us, but he does not always take us on the shortest, most direct route to get us there. Life is full of unexpected detours. But just because there are these uncertainties, that doesn't mean you should always play it safe, so to speak. Everything you do or don't do entails some level of risk and uncertainty. Remember, I talked about trade-offs. There are always going to be trade-offs to be made. 
Everything we do entails some level of risk. You can't avoid that. So what do you do? Seek to be obedient to God. Seek to make the most of what God has given to you. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Verses 7 and 8 remind us that everyone's life is really a mixture of joy and sorrow. This is another theme in Ecclesiastes. That God gives gifts and God gives hardship. Both come from the hand of the same God. Life is a mixture of joy and sorrow. There's light and sweetness, Solomon says. There are gifts that everyone gets to experience and enjoy. There There are gifts of light, gifts of sweetness that God gives to us. But everyone also has their dark days, their stormy days, those days when the sun doesn't shine, those days when the, the, the storm clouds are all around, hovering over you. And Solomon says here, be prepared for both because it is all vapor. That is to say, it's outside of your control. You can't control the sunny days of life and the stormy days of life any more than you can control the weather outside this building. You can't control the weather. Nobody can And so to seek to control your own life, the circumstances of your own life, it's just as foolish. But Solomon's point is this. In the midst of your inability to control your circumstances, in the midst of the vaporousness of life, if you will live by faith all your days, even the hard days can be shot through with joy. That's really what Solomon says in verse 8. However many years a man may have, let him enjoy them all. That is, Solomon says, there is a way to enjoy life right up to the very end. And it's interesting, he says that right before he gives us a poem that describes how difficult the aging process is in the next chapter. He says, you can enjoy all your days right up to the very end if you're clinging to God by faith. Even if life is hard, even if it is unpredictable, even if life does not always seem to cooperate, it is still glorious. It is a glorious thing to be alive. It's an amazing and joyful thing to be alive, to be on this adventure ride called life. Life is an adventure. Life is a story. And like any adventure, like any story, there are hard chapters in the story. And those hard chapters are there because you would never mature without them. What do we call a kid who gets everything he wants all the time? We say that kid is spoiled. God does not spoil his children. He doesn't always give us what we want, and it's for our good. And yet when God does give us things to enjoy, we ought to enjoy them to the fullest. Solomon teaches that as well. And Solomon adds, this is especially possible during youth, during that period of life we call youth. Verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Solomon says, rejoice in your youth, in the days of your youth. If you are a young person here today, you are a billionaire. Do you know that about yourself? You are a billionaire. Not in finances, I didn't say anything about dollars, but in time, you are a billionaire. If you are 20 years old, and you have the average lifespan ahead of you, average life expectancy ahead of you, You have two billion seconds left if you're 20 years old. You are a billionaire. Those seconds, that time, that is your most valuable asset, your most valuable commodity. If you are a young person, you can say, time is on my side. You have time on your side. When you're young, you have this thing called the future out in front of you. 
And that future is full of possibility and expectation and opportunity. You have all kinds of things to look forward to. If you're young, you're a billionaire. Think about it this way. Would you rather be a 20-year-old with a little bit of money but 2 billion seconds to live or a 90-year-old with $2 billion but only a few days to live? I think the choice there is obvious. Everybody would choose youth over money in that scenario. Time is more valuable than money. The last words of Queen Elizabeth I on her deathbed, her last words were, all my possessions for a moment of time. She understood in that moment, in her dying moment, time is worth more than money. If you are a young person, you are a billionaire. Now, for me, at 50 years old, I've got less than a billion seconds to go, most likely, so I'm no longer a billionaire, and that's something I have to come to grips with. But I want to ask you young people, you're billionaires, how are you going to invest your billions? What kind of return on your investment will you get? Will you get a good return on your investment? You've got billions of seconds in front of you, what will you do with that time? Solomon says, rejoice in your youth. Rejoice in the fact that you've got billions of seconds to go. Rejoice. Youth is a time of joy. It's a time of great energy and vitality, of potential and possibility. It is a time of fewer responsibilities and greater freedoms. Because there are fewer responsibilities, there are all kinds of unencumbered freedoms and opportunities that come with youth. Zechariah chapter 8 gives us this beautiful snapshot of life in the kingdom of God. It's, 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 it's pictured as a city and it's got old people in it who are rejoicing there. But it's interesting to me, the streets of the city are full of boys and girls playing with each other in the streets. That's the picture we have of the kingdom of God, life in the kingdom. Boys and girls playing in the streets. Not a care in the world. Just play. Youth is a time full of play. And one problem, I think, is that a lot of youth today don't get enough play in their early years of life. Play has a very important role in uh, the development of a child. But youth is not just a time of play. It's also a time of preparation. A time of preparation for what is to come. Kids, you understand, this is what your parents are seeking to do with you. And this is why sometimes they have a real sense of urgency when they train you and teach you and discipline you because they know what's coming. They know it's down the pike and around the corner for you and they're trying to prepare you for it. They're seeking to prepare you for the next phase of life, to prepare you for the future. That future with so much possibility and opportunity, that future out in front of you that seems so bright, it can all go dark and become a wreck in a moment. If you're unfaithful, disobedient, foolish, you can ruin it. Think of it this way. Again, just, just another metaphor here to think about. In your youth, you are building a house. That is the house you will live in in your old age. In your youth, you're building a house. In your older years, you're going to have to live in that house. So what kind of house are you building? Is it going to be a sturdy house built on a good foundation? I can tell you, the way to have a sturdy house built on a good foundation is to start very early in life trusting God, obeying God, learning how to do acts of service and kindness. Or is it going to be a rotten house? A rotten house because you have lived selfishly 
You've been too prideful to listen to anybody else. You think you know it all, and so you don't have to take instruction or correction from anybody else. What kind of house are you building? Your youthful years are your years of maximum strength and beauty. What will you do with your strength and beauty? You can use those gifts of strength and beauty for good or for evil. All kinds of opportunities in the world today, especially for young men, to use their strength for good or for evil. For young women to use their beauty for good or for evil. What will it be? Your youthful years are also the most impressionable years of your life. This is when you are or should be the most teachable. This is when it is easiest for you to learn and absorb the most. You can more easily learn new skills and establish good habits in your youth. It gets much, much tougher. It can be done at a later age in life, but it's easier the earlier you start these things, learning good habits and and learning skills. There are certain things, if you don't grow up, learning them, they're extremely difficult to learn later on. Languages like this, if you want to learn multiple languages, much easier to learn when you are young than when you are old. These are impressionable years, they're years of opportunity, but they're also your most dangerous years. Because as you grow up, as you deal with the the various stages of youth, you have to deal with things like changing hormones. You have to deal with peer pressure. You have to deal with all kinds of powerful temptations. And how you handle those temptations, how you handle these various trials of youth, really, really matters. And goes a long way to determining what your life looks like down the road. The fact is, as a culture, we probably expect far too little from our young people today. There may have been times in history when too much was expected of young people. I think today, in general, if I can generalize as a culture, we expect far too little of our young people today. And because we do not demand that young people grow up and learn how to take on adult responsibilities, they often do not. They don't grow up at all. They have what's been called a failure to launch. The teenager, the whole concept of a teenager is really a modern invention. It used to be that you would move from childhood to adulthood. And there may be some way of marking that transition, but you would move from childhood to adulthood. And when you moved into adulthood, you were, ta- you were expected to take on adult responsibilities. Now we have created this thing called the teenager or the adolescent. We've created this stage of life where there are No adult-like responsibilities. Adult-like responsibilities are delayed, and yet you get lots of adult-like freedoms. So you have a lot of teenagers out there with, say, some money in their pocket, but no responsibility. They have some money, but no work ethic to understand what it takes to produce money. Uh, For them, life is all freedom and no responsibility. And now we have extended adolescence beyond the teenage years into the 20s and in some cases even into people's 30s. And so, for example, this is why you see people putting off more and more taking on adult responsibilities. It's why a lot of people don't want to get married young like they used to. They don't want to take on that responsibility, the responsibilities of family life. I have no doubt that we underestimate how much young people can actually do. And if you look back across history, you can see that even people in their, as young as say 12 or in their teenage years could really do amazing things. In their 20s, they could do amazing things. John Calvin wrote the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, a book that defined the Reformation and probably did more than any other work to shape modern Western civilization. 
He wrote the first edition when he was 27 years old. A lot of the men who were instrumental in forming our nation, the United States of America, were very young. We call them founding fathers, but a lot of them were pretty young. Thomas Jefferson was 33 years old in 1776. How do you have to spend your first 32 years of life in order to be able to write something like the Declaration of Independence when you're 33? James Madison was 25, and yet a principal author of the Constitution. Alexander Hamilton, 21. James Monroe, 18. Okay. Would you trust a bunch of 20-something-year-olds to found a country today? Probably not, because we don't put responsibility on our teenagers and our 20-something-year-olds that would prepare them for that kind of thing. I think Jordan Peterson has put his finger on a major problem here. He says, our culture obsesses over youth. You know, everything is about being forever 21, like the store, or being forever young, like Dylan sang about. Our culture obsesses over and idolizes youth. And so Peterson says, our entire culture is built on the false assumption that no one will live past 40. We don't do anything to prepare people for the second half of life. Everything our culture focuses on only pertains to youth. And so, so think about this. Our culture obsesses over and idolizes and aspires to things like physical beauty and athletic accomplishments and Instagram likes. All of those things become rapidly meaningless for anyone once they're past 40, if they're really honest. I mean, talk to anyone over 40, most anyone over 40, and they will tell you the most important thing in my life now is my spouse, my children, maybe my grandchildren. That's what people will tell you. Now, obviously, not everybody has a family, and if you don't, God fills that void in other kinds of ways. But most people will say, that's what's most important. But people under 40, the under 40 crowd today is not getting the message, and we know they're not getting the message because marriage rates and birth rates are at an all-time low. Now, again, obviously, not everyone is called to have a spouse and children. You can find meaning and purpose and a mission in life apart from those things if God gifts you for them. But I will say this. I think there are many young people today who are called to those things. They are called to marriage and to family, but they rebel against that calling or they delay that calling because it just looks like too much work. It's not fun. It's not exciting. When the Westminster Larger Catechism goes through sins related to the seventh commandment, uh, related to uh, committing adultery, one of the sins it identifies is the undue delay of marriage. That is, putting off marriage when you ought to be pursuing marriage. I think that's many young people today. Far too many young people today do not catch any sense of purpose or mission, and so they just scroll their lives away. They just scroll their lives away on social media. Jordan Peterson's not a believer, but he actually makes another really important point here related to the one I just gave you. He says, one reason the church leaks its young people, that is one reason so many young people quit church. You know, you have young people quitting the church in droves today. Why is that? Peterson says, one reason they quit church is because the church does not demand enough of them. Too often the church settles for entertaining young people instead of equipping and discipling them, instead of putting responsibilities on them, age-appropriate responsibilities, of course, not crushing them with loads they can't carry, but helping them grow into those adult-like responsibilities. Because that is how you grow and mature, is by taking on increasing responsibilities as you go. That's how you gain confidence. 
That's why we have a, a whole generation that is wrecked with a lack of confidence and so full of anxiety. They haven't really been given any kind of mission. They haven't really done anything. And so, of course, they're anxious and insecure and lacking purpose in life. They never get that sense of satisfaction or fulfillment that comes with working hard to fulfill a responsibility. You find satisfaction in life by finding your God-given purpose and then fulfilling it. Think of all the young people in the Bible who accomplished great things even in their youth. Daniel was still a young man when he rose through the ranks of the Babylonian Empire. And how did he do it? He did it because he pursued wisdom and obedience even in a countercultural way. Daniel may have been the original counterculture. He goes off to Babylon and he chooses to live as a faithful, obedient believer in the midst of a pagan culture. David killed Goliath as a very young man. Timothy was still a young man when he was put in charge of the church in Ephesus. I will tell you, if you are young, one of the best things you can do is sit at the feet of those who are older and wiser. Honor them, ask them questions, soak up their insights. Let an older person who has been there, who has walked this road, let that older person become your tour guide to life. The young cannot know how old feels. The young cannot be expected to know how old age feels. But the old do know what it's like to be young. And so I would urge the young to listen to the old, to learn from them, to honor them. Solomon's advice to you as a young person in verse 9 is to remember that God will bring all things into judgment. The young do not get a free pass just because they're young. How you live in your younger years will be taken into account in the judgment as well as everything else. Solomon goes on, he says, remove vexation from your heart. That is to say, do not worry, and we'll come to that in a bit. I'll get to that really next week, why he can say to remove vexation, to remove, you could say, fear or worry. And then he says, put away evil from your flesh. He says, remember that your childhood and youth is a vapor or a mist. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. This gets us into chapter 12, verse 1. It's interesting here, creator, the word for creator is in the plural. Recalling the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 where God speaks of himself in the plural. Let us make man in our image. And so no doubt when Solomon speaks here of the creator in this way, with this hint of plurality within God, he's pointing to the Trinity. When he says, remember your creator, you can read that as remember Father, Son, and Spirit even in your youth. Understand, young people, being young does not justify any sins. There is no such thing as justification by youth alone. You're not off the hook for obedience just because you're young. The culture may use youth to justify all kinds of things. It's just kids being kids. Oh, they're just out sowing their wild oats while the parents are praying for crop failure in the future. No, it doesn't work that way. The creator does not accept that. Why should God, the God who created you, who loves you, who cares for you, why should God not be given our most vital and energetic years of life? The best time in life to learn how to trust and obey God is youth. It can be learned in old age, but it is much harder. People do get converted later in life, but things go much, much better when you remember your triune creator in the early days of life. 
And so seize the moment and use each day to serve your creator. Remembering, yes, this is the God who made you, who loves you, who cares for you. Now, we're going to continue talking to young people next week. But next week, we're especially going to get into what Solomon says to older people and what he says about older age. And I hope you'll, you'll find that full of wisdom. I hope this has been helpful to you as well. But it comes down to this. If you really had to summarize what is Solomon's message, and again, he comes to a, to a grand conclusion right at the end of the book. And we'll look at that in a little more detail next week. But this is what it comes down to. We're to fear God and keep his commandments, which means clinging to God, clinging to God by, by faith, trusting him in all things, because no matter what age you are, life has its hardships, life has its joys, but the only way to really enjoy the joys and the only way to make it through the hardships without despair is by clinging to this God, by remembering your creator, whether you are young or old, remember your creator in all of life. Every stage and season and phase of life, this is what it's about. Honoring God by remembering him as your maker. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.